Podcasting from Hartford, you're listening to the Connecticut Scoreboard Podcast, your place for all things Connecticut sports. And here is your host, Jared Cutler. So on today's episode of the Connecticut Scoreboard Podcast, we're talking with Dr. Anthony Alessi. He's the director of UConn's Neurosport Program and works with a variety of sports. He was recently featured in a UConn Magazine story talking about his time as a consulting neurologist with MMA. So Dr. Alessi, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here, Jared. So Dr. Alessi, for those who who haven't read the story and aren't as familiar with you, um, why don't you give us a little background on yourself? Um, You know, I know you're the director of the UConn Neurosport Program, and maybe talk a bit about that program. Uh, Well, uh, interesting, Jared. Uh, My background is uh, I'm a physician, an MD, and I specialize in the field of neurology. So um, after attending medical school, I went to the University of Michigan, where I did a residency in neurology and then did an extra year of fellowship in neuromuscular disease. So those are diseases like Lou Gehrig's disease, muscular dystrophy, peripheral nerve disease. After finishing that, I came to Norwich and was in a uh, practice there, and I've been in private practice for 30 years. But my uh, involvement in sports actually goes back to high school of all times, when I started working as an athletic trainer at my high school in Bronx, New York, called Mount St. Michael, uh, which was an all-boys school, a Catholic school. And uh, so I started working as an athletic trainer. Now, I don't even put that on my CV because back then it was a correspondence course. It certainly was not an advanced degree that it is now. But it gave me a, a real love for sports medicine in general. Uh, I really lost contact with that because as a neurologist, there really wasn't much of a role in sports. When the Yankees came uh, to Norwich, I started working with them, and they thought it would have been a great idea to have a neurologist come down in, uh, in spring training. And that's where I am right now. As I speak to you now, I'm in Tampa, Florida. I'm working with the New York Yankees. I'm down here now for the entire period of spring training. So that was really my first involvement with sports neurology. And at that time, there may have been three of us doing that. Uh, So it has really evolved. Now the field of sports neurology has its own fellowship after young physicians finish their residency. In fact, my daughter is doing a fellowship in sports neurology in Michigan now. But so time in baseball, uh, the folks at first at Foxwoods uh, got in touch with me and asked if I'd be interested in coming over to a um, fight and seeing what they do. Uh, I honestly have not been a fight fan, and I'm not really a fight fan now, even in terms of boxing or MMA. Uh, But I went to the fight. And the commissioner then, at that time, John Burns, came to me and said, uh, you know, do you think you'd like to join us at ringside? Uh, My only response was, well, do I get to end the fight? And he said, yes. He said, matter of fact, that's what we want you to do, is we need people who are qualified to know when a fight should be over. So I said, well, then I'm your guy. So I have been ending fights ever since then uh, and being booed for it much of the time. But um, you know, I'm proud to say that in Connecticut, we've never had a death in the ring, uh, which not a lot of can say. So Connecticut 
when you look at the country, is a very safe place to fight uh, for matches. Uh, Mohegan specifically has done a phenomenal job. And so we've gradually revised our criteria. I work with Dr. Michael Schwartz, who is the chief ringside physician. And, you know, we are constantly revising what's required, what we're going to look at uh, based on new information that's in the literature and, and things that we've found over the years. So it's, it's been an interesting, uh, it's been an interesting ordeal. Um, but it's been uh, great for me because I, I enjoy sports. Um, the thing I really enjoy is working with athletes. Um, because, and and I, the reason is because they never give up. It's very interesting. Um, you know, you can have an athlete. I had a young woman once, a, a girl. Uh, she was an athlete. She was a gymnast and had a brain tumor. And... You know, we went over everything, you know, in terms of treatment. She was going to have to go to radiation. And all she wanted to know was, okay, how do I get better? It's never, they, they always think, okay, it's something I can rehab. I've had athletes with Lou Gehrig's disease. Now, we all know it's 100% fatal. They don't look at it that way. Athletes have an athletic mindset that if I put my mind to it and I work hard, I can beat this thing. And indeed, that young woman is still alive today and did a wonderful job. But, you know, instead of just physical therapy, she wanted to get back on a beam. I mean, the beam was on the floor. It was a two by four. And she was still working towards getting back to gymnastics. So I just love working with patients who have that just that that way of looking at life and looking at health. Yeah, so I'm curious, because you talked about ending a fight, and then that mindset of the athletes never wanting, wanting to give up. How do you, uh, you know, go about that in the ring, you know, when someone might necessarily not want to give up, but you, you personally, you know, see that they're not in the condition to keep going? How, how do you work that battle with some of those athletes? So it's not always a battle. You have to think, first of all, MMA and boxing are combat sports. It's a very different type of sport, and they're both very different. In boxing, the only way you can score points is to neurologically impair your opponent. Just think about it. No other sport is that the goal, right? I mean, people get hurt in football, but you still got to score a touchdown to get points. Hockey, still got to get the puck in the net. Not in boxing. In boxing, you have to knock out your opponent. You have to neurologically impair them in order to score points. The big difference between boxing and MMA is in boxing, there's no tap out, right? There's no way you can tap out with honor. So a lot of people ask me, what's the first thing you say to a fighter when you get in the corner? The first thing I ask is, do you still want to do this? And you know what? Sometimes they say no. They, they've had enough. So suddenly I'm their tap out. So I end the fight. The fighter will probably get up, say some nasty things about my mother. But with a wink and a nod, he knows that I may have just saved uh, his life. And I definitely saved his paycheck because if he quits, he's not getting paid. So with that, it, it, there's, there's this whole other position. Now, again, we face a lot of challenges because as any fight fan will know, many of the fighters don't speak English anymore. Um, they don't even speak Spanish, right? We have a lot of Asian fighters. And we have a lot of Eastern European fighters. 
So it's a real problem because you're working through a translator and you don't know exactly what they're saying. Don't forget, many of these fighters get paid based on the number of rounds they fight. And that's how their corners are getting paid. So as a physician at ringside, I'm, I am the fighter's advocate. That's my role there, okay? I'm probably the only person in that arena who's truly on that fighter's side, right? Their spouse may even be telling them to get the heck back out there, okay? Um, and I work for the commission. That's a big difference. So I don't have to worry about the promoter not bringing me back for the next fight because I ended it too soon. I don't have to worry about them paying me or not paying me. So I can actually be the most neutral person and really take up the cause for that fighter. And sometimes the fighters understand it and sometimes they don't, but you have to, it takes a certain personality to work at ringside. This is a tough sport. It's tough on the fighters and it's tough on all of us who are there. If you're not forceful and definitive, you can't be wishy-washy about what you're going to do. Um, you really have to be um, pretty tough with these guys. Yeah, one thing I think uh, that you just spoke about that was interesting to me is being that independent, neutral uh, observer there. And, and, you know, we've seen the issue in football where, where people have said, you know, coaching staff and players have just kind of skirted concussion protocols. And, and now that there's uh, a requirement for to have an independent person uh, on the side there, how do you think that's changed sports and, and helped, uh, you know, keep our athletes safer out there? I think it's helped a lot. Um, you know, I serve on the Mackey White Committee and on the Accountability and Care Committee for the NFL Players Association. And back in 2011, uh, Demora Smith reached out to me and asked me to serve um, and, and advise them on the collective bargaining agreement at that time. And when I spoke to him, I asked why me? I mean, I had nothing to do with football at the time. I mean, I worked at UConn um, and worked on their sideline in high school football, but I had nothing to do with the NFL or any NFL team. So I asked myself, why me? And he said, because in 2009, you were elected the ringside physician of the year. And he said, we need you because we are afraid our sport is going to become boxing. Mm -hmm. It was a very insightful thing to say in 2011 because he made everything in that collective bargaining agreement about safety. So suddenly there were no repetitive two-a-days. You could not hit more than two half-days. A player could not be in full pads more than two half-days during the week, during the season. Okay? No hitting. So... It was a very interesting position to take, but just think about it. When we think about boxing, historically, it's always been the lowest rung of the socioeconomic ladder, right? I mean, people with a lot of money, okay, and Harvard business degrees aren't getting in the ring. It's always people who want to achieve that American dream, whether they were Irish, whether they were black, Italian, whoever was at the lowest rung of the ladder, was suddenly in the ring. His insight was, if we don't clean up football, that's what this is going to become. And unfortunately now, right, eight years later, since he told me that, that's what we're facing, right? Because 
we're seeing more kids play lacrosse and other sports rather than playing football. And again, the people playing football, okay, are tend to be the people on the lowest rung of the ladder now. That's what's starting to evolve. So it's a real problem. Yeah. What, what do you say to the people that say that, that the, the new rules and, and the changes that have been made to football take away for, from what football is? Uh, you know, what, what, what's your argument to them? Is it simply that, you know, if you want to go the way of boxing, you know, you could stay that way, but the sport's going to be gone in the next, you know, handful of years? Well, absolutely. It, it's a sport and sports evolve, whether people like it or not. In 1905, Teddy Roosevelt mandated the use of a helmet because 10 collegiate athletes died from skull fractures. What did they say to Teddy Roosevelt? My gosh, he's changing the sport by giving them helmets. So the sport has evolved and needs to continue to evolve if it's going to be relevant. And so you're talking to a guy who's had something to say about changing these rules, Mm -hmm. especially with the neurotrauma specialist on the sideline. But And I think more rules need to be changed. I don't see a purpose to the kickoff. I think it's a useless play. And it carries with it the most severe injuries we see in football because they're high-velocity impact. So as much as the new rules of kicking from the 35, I mean, what fun is it to see the ball fly out of the end zone? Yeah. Okay, it's rare that you see a run back. We have – so – Everybody says, well, we reduced the number of concussions. We've also reduced the number of runbacks. So when you look at the data, even in the past year, the number of concussions per runback is still the same, even though it's a lower number. Mm -hmm. And the severity of injury is still there. So again, there are more rule changes that need to be made. And the Players Association... Not the NFL. It is the Players Association that has pushed those forward. I think, I think the rosters need to be enlarged so that players get adequate rest and are not necessarily under so much pressure to get back early. So, yes, changes have been made. Changes continue to be made. I love the sport of football. I, I think it's a great sport. I think it's a sport that typifies America in many respects. But again, it needs to be to evolve. Youth football, there is no reason young children should be hitting each other at high velocity and wearing pads. There's just no reason for it. I work with professional football players. I got to tell you, Jared, uh, only a minority of them ever played youth football. I mean, uh, let's look at it. Uh, you know, none of the Mannings played youth football. You know, Archie didn't send Peyton and Eli out there to get hit. Okay, Tom Brady never played youth football. When I when I sit with players, many of them did not. They played other sports. Some were great track athletes. Okay, we've seen that happen time and again. So p- parents seem to have this vision that having their child hit each other starting at age six is their ticket to the NFL. And I could tell you fact. So what I'm happy to see in Eastern Connecticut and around the country is flag football. Why? Because 
you get all the skills, throwing, catching, running, strategy. It's what we call an invasive sport, right? When we think of invasive sport, there's sports that go into someone else's territory. Mm -hmm. So children who want to play an invasive sport should participate and cross-train in other sports like it. So, for example, football players who also play soccer, who also play football, uh, who also play basketball, again, invasive sports, as opposed to tennis or, or something of that nature. So, again, there's a lot. When you, when you talk about youth sports, there's a lot for us to learn going forward to make it safer and maintain the interest in football. I, and I want to ask a little more because you said you're with the Yankees right now at, at spring training. And I don't think people necessarily you know, sure. think of baseball as necessarily a, a concussion heavy sport. Where do you see the biggest mm-hmm. risks in baseball? Is it the pitcher who's, you know, facing a comebacker to the head, you know, a, a, an outfielder running into the wall? Where do you see the biggest, uh, you know, concussion areas in, in the sport of baseball? It's very interesting. Since 2011, uh, baseball, uh, Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball, professional baseball has kept really good statistics on this. And in the papers published, 40, a little over 40% of all concussions occur to catchers. So again, when we talk about rule changes, we change the rules at home plate, right? So there are three ways of getting a concussion in baseball. It is hit by a foul tip, right? hit directly by a baseball or a collision. And when you look at it, it is really the catchers. So when we got rid of collisions at home plate, the number of injuries to catchers was died. What's clear is the foul tip is probably, you know, sometimes we just think about it as nothing, that little bit of a foul tip. Uh, But you'd be surprised that that is a huge source of concussion in baseball. What makes baseball most interesting for a neurologist is the fact that it is so difficult to come back. Baseball is the most difficult sport to come back to after a concussion, Jared. And the reason is that in order to hit a baseball, you have to use so many neural networks in the brain. It's not a question of just perceiving the foot, the baseball coming at you. When you think of a baseball coming at you at 90 miles per hour, it takes so much from a brain standpoint. And we've got good studies on this where we've done functional MRI of the brain and looking at different areas of the brain become active when a batter is trying to decide whether it's a fastball, curve, or slider, just three choices. And So to get to that level takes an awful lot, Uh, as opposed to other sports, because it doesn't take a lot of neural activity to hit the guy in front of you. So it's a little bit different. And the same in boxing. Again, not a lot of brain activity necessary to perform those skills. So although, um, although baseball is a minimal contact sport, um, it is certainly one where concussions have a tremendous effect in returning to the sport and the income to the athlete who has suffered a concussion. Yeah. 
Uh, I think that's particularly interesting, especially, you know, being around the Yankees, you know, you'd see Yankee fans, you know, online last year complaining about Clint Frazier, an outfielder who couldn't seem to get rid of mm-hmm. concussion symptoms and everyone seemed to wonder why it was so long. So it's interesting to hear that part from your perspective of how difficult it is to come back in baseball from a concussion. So Dr. Alessi, I'll get you out of here on this one. I, I'd say probably over the past, you know, 10 to 15 years, we've really seen the mindset on concussions um, change. Do you see that continuing going forward? Um, you know, and where do you kind of see the next steps going in terms of, of where we look at concussions in sports? So it's very interesting. Um, what we're doing here with the New York Yankees um, has been really and other professional teams working on how do we get athletes back to better brain health sooner after a concussion? That's been the real challenge. What we know is the human brain has something we call neuroplasticity. It has a way of repairing itself. We used to think patients who had a stroke, once they had a stroke, that part of the brain that was deprived of oxygen is dead. And it's not. There are ways of rehabilitating it. So previously in concussion, we thought, have a concussion, you go in a dark room, shut off the lights, no computers, no TV. What we found is that that's the worst thing you can do from the standpoint that the brain needs to be stimulated. So we try to get our athletes back to some aerobic activity within two days of the injury. Even if they're still having symptoms, if they're relatively minor symptoms like a mild headache, Mm -hmm. um, we'll get them back on a stationary bicycle. What we're implementing now is actually getting them back to a baseball-related activity in some way. And uh, my daughter, Stephanie, was down here giving a talk on this where she's done her work at Michigan has been uh, tremendous in terms of physical therapy exercises that aid in eye-hand coordination during this rehabilitation. So we have embarked on a whole new frontier in brain health. Again, what else can you do? There's no great supplement, okay? It's not rocket science. It's a matter of eat, drink, sleep, Mm -hmm. remain hydrated. And you could work with athletes and get them back sooner. So uh, that's really uh, where the brave new world is in the area of concussion and brain injury right now. Interesting. So, Dr. Alessi, thank you uh, so much for your time today. Uh, Really informational. Uh, Really appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure, Jared. And uh, thanks for everything you're doing and getting good information out to the public. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Connecticut Scoreboard Podcast with Jared Cutler. If you like the show and want to know more, check out the podcast on Twitter at CT Scoreboard Pod, the host at Jared Cutler, and find us on Facebook at the Connecticut Scoreboard Podcast. Finally, if you enjoy what you're listening to, rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.